Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from clinical development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. Today, we're so excited to welcome Chris Benko from Conexa Health, the digital biomarker company. Chris has an amazing background. He was born and bred at Merck and played a number of roles throughout his career there before getting a significant investment to help build and spin out Conexa Health, which we're really excited to talk about today. We'll talk about what Conexa is doing and building the digital biomarker space, the need to build digital biomarkers early in the clinical development process, and Chris's own journey to being CEO, as well as what's a little bit broken about the traditional CRO model and ways that we think we can fix that moving forward. So welcome to the show, Chris. Really excited to have you here. Uh, thanks, Kim and Ramin. I'm really happy to be here and speaking with you. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about Conexa, Conexa Health um, and, and where it started and what you're building at Conexa? Yeah, absolutely. So let me start with Conexa's mission, which is improving lives by building health measurements that matter. That's what we talk about is the enduring mission of our company. Um, but I can tell you a little bit about how it gets started and, and gets to where we are today, which is as one of the companies that's really pioneering the work around how we take digital health technologies and digital data and use those to build digital biomarkers that can be used to make decisions about patients um, and about how to bring new medicines to market. Um, as you as you noted in your introduction, I really was more or less maybe not quite born, but definitely raised and otherwise trained at Merck. I started as an 18-year-old undergraduate intern and worked there for 20 years, going from intern level to, to a corporate vice president before I had the opportunity to start Conexa uh, as, as an entrepreneur in residence for Merck's corporate venture fund. Um, I had some early experiences in technology roles, in strategy facilitator roles, but some of the most formative and important years for me were spent working on our operating model for early development. And this was about 15 years ago when building out translational medicine capabilities inside pharma was still a fairly emerging concept. And, and Merck was an early investor in translational medicine capabilities across what I would refer to now fondly as traditional biomarkers, molecular imaging and fluid biomarkers. And what that experience taught me that has been very powerful for Conexa are two things. Um, the first is that biomarkers are among the most important measurement tools we have for assessing where to place our investments. And the availability of an effective measurement tool or the deployment of effective measurement tools can have a huge bearing on how fast a medicine gets to market or whether or not we even pursue medicine development in a particular area at all. So that's something that stuck with me very strongly. In addition to that, I watched how challenging the change management can be to take drug development teams um, and clinical teams from traditional endpoints and methods that are well understood and asking them to adopt different methods um, as, as part of their process, especially when adoption of those methods very often meant generating data for the teams that came behind them rather than for their own benefit. So I had the opportunity to really take those lessons to heart um, when I was given the chance to build Conexa um, through Merck's Corporate Innovation Fund. Um, very simply, our thesis is that digital health technologies and digital health data have every bit as much potential as molecular and genetic information to transform our understanding of health. 
Um, but they also face many of the same challenges and how you get teams to work together, some of the big data and technology considerations. And so we've leveraged that as we've built a business that's centered around a software platform that allows us to focus on integrating data between patients participating in studies and the, the nurses and coordinators that oversee the conduct of those studies. So our software makes sure that we can integrate data seamlessly and in a high compliance fashion from multiple different digital health tools that could be used by the patient. Sometimes those tools are, are software applications that Conexa provides. Other times we integrate data from third-party wearables, sensors, and other applications, but we make that a seamless experience for the nurse and the patient. That's the software part of our business. Scientifically, we approach these challenges by looking to validate digital biomarkers with the same basic methods that would be used to validate traditional biomarkers, molecular imaging or fluid, and then we surround it with the supporting services, the things that are required to help our pharmaceutical industry customers be successful. Everything from helping to make sure that the device and technology deployments work successfully to some of the very complex work of developing algorithms off of the raw or nearly raw data that we get back from these tools and applying that in the context of a clinical validation plan or a clinical study plan. Chris, maybe just to, to say it as simply as possible, you're able to take everyday data sets. So the aura ring I'm wearing, the Fitbit, all of these things that are fairly ubiquitous in society now, pair that with other tools that you might be providing as part of a clinical study and actually calculate something that's really clinically meaningful to the trial sponsors that can actually change the trajectory of how the drug itself is developed. Is that correct? That's absolutely right, Kim. You know, the one nuance to that is sometimes consumer devices work okay in clinical studies. Other times we have to do different work with those technologies. And sometimes we need different technologies that are identified for medical grade, but the, the basic constructs are the same. We, we're all now, I think many of us familiar with these tools that we can use to track ourselves. We're trying to figure out how do we make that data work in the context of, of some of the most rigorous clinical trials and some of the most high impact decisions that are made in drug development. Maybe just to clarify for those listening in and, and who are trying to figure out how do I deploy digital biomarkers into my own development processes or the programs that I'm thinking about? Can you help differentiate a digital measurement from a digital biomarker from a formal digital endpoint? How do you differentiate those terms and how should we be thinking about kind of the, the differentiation? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Kim. And I think one of the things that gets challenging and confusing is people will throw around the term biomarker a little bit indiscriminately when what they really mean is measurement. So I, I would say that the, the data that's coming off, you know, my Garmin watch um, or that might be coming off a wearable ECG is digital measurement data. It's a signal. Um, it's data from an accelerometer, from a gyroscope or from the leads on that ECG. Uh, and many technologies come with their own software packages to help you make sense of that data in some context, but they're usually not made for drug development. A biomarker um, always involves, and, and the definitions for digital biomarkers don't really need to be different than traditional biomarkers, but we're looking for um, the effect of a disease or the effect of a treatment on a patient. That's what we're trying to assess. And so that means taking the measurement data, the signal data, and then doing either analytical or clinical studies that actually prove that that data tells us what we think it might be telling us about something that's changing um, within the patient's body. Now, there is a blurry overlap sometimes between biomarkers um, and clinical outcome assessments. 
clinical outcome assessments actually assess how a patient feels, functions, or survives. It's a bit of a higher, higher bar, if you will. Biomarkers can contribute to, be part of, or become clinical outcome assessments. So there are cases where we're trying to recreate whole new measurement scales for a given disease. Um, there are also biomarker measures that might be useful from a research perspective that tell us something that's going on in the body, but isn't necessarily purely indicative of how a patient feels, functions, or survives. So to give you a simple for instance, um, the watch I'm wearing can track my heart rate variability reasonably well using a light-based sensor called the plethosmography sensor on the back of it. Um, the heart rate variability signal by itself doesn't tell you much about how I feel, function, or survive, but the changes in my heart rate variability could be really indicative of something that's happening due to a disease or an intervention. So to create a biomarker, we have to take that signal and do a study that properly characterizes how heart rate variability relates to that particular um, disease or treatment of interest in a way that researchers and regulators can understand and put into context. One of my favorite examples that I've heard you talk about a few different times, but I, I'd love for you to maybe dive into a little bit here is really leveraging the Parkinson's example and how you've um, been able to leverage you know, the cell phone itself to identify measurements around Parkinson's tremors and how you really started to build some of the, the core thesis of the company and the analytical validation. Could you talk us through that example a little bit? Sure, Kim, if you don't mind, I'm going to rewind for a second. I'll tell you a little bit. I think you've heard this from me before about how Parkinson's relates to the story of Conexus founders getting together. I had an opportunity um, when I was still working for Merck to connect with our head of early development. Uh, he's at Regeneron now. His name's Gary Herman. And I was telling him that we had this thesis that these wearable technologies and data could be helpful. And he reminded me that we had just had an asset fail that had part of a, a big merger that we all worked on between Merck and Sharing Plow. It was a Parkinson's asset. And the primary endpoint was a paper symptom diary. And Gary's challenge to me was, Chris, there's so many obvious and known limitations to recall and all the issues with a paper symptom diary. And this drug, there was a lot of other reason to believe it had a tremendous amount of potential. Couldn't you guys do something better with what you're building? And when I first met um, one of my two co-founders, Rob, and I told him that story, um, you know, unbeknownst to me, his father was in the late stages of, of dealing with Parkinson's disease, and he would pass on within the next 18 months from it. But Rob's primary passion and motivation in moving his data science skills from the financial services world into healthcare was his passion around making a difference for people like his dad. And one of our very, very early crude experiments that does not in any way relate to legitimate clinical validation, but it taught us a lot, involved Rob putting a, a, a Fitbit tracker on his dad, connecting it to our platform and realizing that, that at night his dad was having disturbed sleep and getting up and walking nearly a mile, just pacing around his own bedroom by himself. And his mom, who is the primary caregiver, but not sleeping in the same room, was totally unaware that he was having these disturbances that undoubtedly had impact on his fatigue during the day. So it was a very intuitive eye opener to us to say, wow, there's so much we don't understand. Now, I'll contrast that to what you asked. In reality, the FDA or the EMA is going to look at the universal Parkinson's disease rating scale as the endpoint that they would expect for a disease-modifying therapy for Parkinson's. Importantly, we have no disease-modifying therapies for Parkinson's that are approved. So these scales were designed a long, long time ago just to generally characterize disease progression, which can be somewhat pro problematic. Um, so it involves doing things like a motor examination where a clinician might ask a patient to hold out his or her hand 
and turn it palm up, palm down. And that's an activity called pronation supination. And how you move your hand like that is actually very important to a number of tasks, like buttoning things and opening things. But the way it's assessed by a clinician is a simple one through four rating that they're eyeballing. And that has a huge amount of variability, as you might expect. Could be due to the patient's symptom changes from week to week. It could be due to the eyesight of the clinician. I know mine doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, the way that we do that assessment is we have an app on an iPhone that a patient clicks. It's part of the same sequence of similar types of assessments they would do in the clinic. And it asks them to complete the exercise except holding the phone in their hand. So it doesn't require them to visit a clinician. It doesn't even require a telemedicine visit, but it actually has the added benefit of using the sensors in the phone, the accelerometer and the gyroscope um, to figure out how much tremor is occurring in my hand as I turn it back and forth, the amplitude and speed, if you will. There's a lot of work required to figure out how to build that assessment, how to extract the features, how to actually validate it, that it does what we say it's going to do. But I think intuitively, most of us realize that it should be quite possible for these sensors to do an outstanding job of, of reporting on my tremor. Controlling and managing the data in the environment and doing the work is a lot of research, but it creates great potential for us to have much more sensitive instruments and importantly, instruments that can be deployed much more rapidly and much more frequently because they reach patients in their homes. They don't require them to drive to the nearest neurology center to get that evaluation. Yeah, you seem to be creating this really um, objective point of view of what the measures can be. And obviously there's um, complexities and you know, not every time you take the measurement is it going to be absolutely perfect. I absolutely recognize that. Um, but you're creating a more objective approach that can be more ubiquitously applied so that more people can get access and really you can collect more data on patients than it sounds like you've ever really had. The way our chief medical officer, John Wagner, often likes to describe it, a digital biomarker is like the difference between taking a still photo and filming a movie. And I think that's a really powerful analogy because when you're when you're recording people so much more frequently, you're able to see progression and context and things that you can't capture in that still photo. With that being said, there's still important scientific complexity in how do you interpret the difference between those two things. They're, they're um, you know, not, not always as easy to compare as, as you might think. You know, one has audio, the other doesn't, for instance. So how to, how to make those things feel or seem interoperable or interchangeable is, is a complex part of our business. But, but the appreciation of that richness and what it can teach us about the course of disease and how disease matters in patients' lives is absolutely tremendous and exciting. And one of the things that you know, gets me up out of bed in the morning to come to work every day. It's very exciting, Chris. Thanks, thanks for sharing with us. Uh, I mean, historically, collecting clinical trial data has been a straight line and a linear path, right? Uh, and the traditional biomarkers are very limited. What, what is the amount of data they, they, they can collect? Even if the patient is in a clinical trial and the number of the visits and everything that is happening and the patients, the data that needs to be collected is still going to be very limited. It seems like now digital biomarkers are entering the mainstream clinical trials with thousands of trials, uh, accelerating the research, getting the drug to the, to the patients faster. I know you at Connexa have developed evidence-based validated digital biomarkers for neuroscience, oncology, which was very interesting to see respiratory, some other rare therapeutic diseases uh, where we really need to collect a more complete patient data. How, how is the regulatory's perspective on, on this FDA, EMA, 
what are what are they thinking about digital biomarkers? Uh, Ramin, it's an awesome question, and we've seen we've seen a real kind of evolution of what both FDA and EMA have been doing. And I credit both agencies with working really hard to, to try to clarify some of the requirements around digital biomarkers. I'm, I'm going to do a quick pause on the regulatory question to back up to something that I think folks often miss. Um, the vast, vast, vast majority of biomarkers, forget about digital biomarkers for a second, the vast majority of biomarkers that we use have no particular qualification or endorsement by the FDA or EMA in any regulatory sense. Um, and, and I think where I've seen a lot of sponsors get confused is thinking that digital biomarkers need to behave differently. There are pathways that if you want to market your biomarker commercially, you can pursue with FDA that relatively new. Uh, the biomarker qualification process articulated by the 21st Century Cures Act in 2016 um, makes it easier to understand if I want to commercially qualify and market my biomarker, what to go do. But if I want to use a biomarker in drug development, it may or may not really require um, anything from the FDA. Now, importantly, the big pharma companies, when they're making investment decisions about going from phase two to phase three, they have a lot more resources than the FDA. And fundamentally, if it's a question of, of making a judgment on efficacy, it's up to those companies to decide what data they trust and how to make that decision. So we think a lot about what their requirements are and how to engage with the right stakeholders. Now, ultimately, what does Conexa want to be doing? We want to help people get to registration as fast as possible if their drug's going to succeed. We want to shrink the number of patients, which can be done when you reduce measurement error. So what that means is that the most effective thing to do is to consult with the FDA through the type C process. Um, and EMA has similar mechanisms whereby any biomarker that you want to introduce into a study comes into the dialogue as you're developing your investigational new drug or BLA application. That early and frequent engagement with the agencies allows them to bring in the cross-disciplinary expertise, including around digital tools, including around the disease area of interest, to make sure that the scientific approach is sound. The best framework um, is a you know, publicly available acknowledged framework from uh, NIH, FNIH, and, and FDA that does a fantastic job of articulating how biomarkers should be qualified, independent of whether they're digital technologies or other technologies. And we use that really as the guiding um, framework for all of the work that we do, whether or not we are trying to influence a registration and it becomes more formally required as part of the process or expected, or if we're trying to do something and simply leverage best scientific practices because we're informing an internal decision. I'll close this comment by saying, I realize there's still a lot of confusion among sponsors around this. So I credit both FDA and EMA with working hard and regularly adding to their guidance. Um, but nonetheless, it's very evident that people are still perplexed as to whether or not they need to pursue a biomarker approval in order to use these digital health tools um, in, in their own context. And unfortunately, it just it will continue to be a little bit of a gray area. Uh, and there are going to be a lot of companies that need to do their own qualification and validation work to support their own internal decision-making or to satisfy the agency. When would be the optimal time then, based on what you're saying, to be thinking about digital biomarkers? This is not just at the phase three that you'll come in with the digital biomarkers. I'm assuming that you'll start this very earlier than that, especially in rare diseases, ultra-rare diseases, natural history data that is very rare and you want to collect that. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How, how do companies need to think about their strategy about digital 
biomarkers. Is, is it throughout the life cycle management? Is it just play a role in, in one segment of clinical development? This is a major hot point for us. And this is one where I'd say, uh, sadly, not too much has changed in the 15 or 20 years I've been working around things like biomarkers in translational medicine. It is a little bit of the same problem that we've seen before, which is that drug development teams very often realize they have a measurement challenge and they might really want a biomarker a little too late in the process. And I would argue even that, that most of the time when you're thinking about phase 2B, you're probably a little bit too late. Um, unless the validation evidence is really off the shelf for the condition that you're working in, it can be challenging to generate the data in parallel to the clinical study in a way that would be used to, to sufficiently support a decision. In most cases, it needs to be validated in advance. Um, in rare diseases, as you, as you mentioned, we really need a lot more work in the field to do natural history studies, to even characterize the progression of these diseases, to characterize the symptoms, to understand which technologies are usable by the patients and whether or not they make sense to the patients. So early engagement with patient groups and natural history studies is ideal. Otherwise, you want to be doing work in your phase one programs. As early as you're doing human safety studies, you should be at least testing and understanding how the measures work in the population of interest so that by the time you get to phase two, that's where you can see some of the greatest value in these tools. When you might be insufficiently powered to fully answer an efficacy question, that's when you want more biomarker data to help give you confidence as to which way to lean. And ultimately, if you're doing that process well, ideally you'll have tools that help inform that registration study. So that's really the ideal way to think about it. We're always trying to be creative and flexible about different ways to leverage existing data sets, to build on existing data sets and validation. But certainly for someone thinking about a rare disease program, our encouragement is always, if you know that there's a disease area that you're going to be targeting in the future, invest in the natural history study, develop relationships with the patient groups, make sure that you characterize things very, very early on. What about CRO's perspective? What role do they play? What's their perspective on digital biomarkers? What role do they play uh, in this whole dynamic of being able to collect total patient information? Uh, what are some of the thoughts there? So I think about the CROs as more of the general contractors in the overall equation of what we do in drug development. Um, biomarkers, the application of biomarkers, it's more like a lab tool. And what I would say related to that is um, for folks that are, are listening who work in drug development, if you're developing a new measure, you go to the bioanalytical lab, not the central lab. And that's kind of similar with things like biomarkers or digital biomarkers. You want to use specialists typically to develop the measures, and then you want to use generalists to scale the measures. So CROs are the most important partners we have in scaling to support clinical trials globally. They have the reach at the site level to help make sure that everything is taken into consideration and works together in concert. So that's really, really important at the execution stage. They're much less likely to be engaged or particularly involved in the design of those new biomarkers or measures. They tend to receive those requests from their pharma partners downstream of the actual design. And I would say that a gap in the system today is that the development of new biomarkers and new measures, it does require doing studies in human subjects. Analytical validation typically in healthy subjects but clinical validation in, in the population with the disease of interest. Those studies that are done to validate these biomarkers, 
usually do not involve anywhere near the safety considerations of having an investigational drug product. It's not to say that there's never a safety consideration um, for a device or a technology, but it's a much, much um, more limited uh, uh, safety consideration. And there's a bunch of other overhead to an investigational drug study that doesn't really belong in the clinical validation of a biomarker. So I'd say that's one of the gaps and pain points in our industry right now is that a traditional CRO model study, if you're just doing validation, it's too complex, heavy, and expensive for what's actually required to, to clinically validate a biomarker. It's totally appropriate for investigational new products. And so that's an area that I would like to see the field um, mature and grow into to accelerate how we get these tools to market. I think one of the interesting points that you, that you brought up here, Chris, and going back to something you, you stated earlier, digital biomarkers and a lot of the promise of what Connex is doing is to make clinical studies faster and cheaper and get more patients to the table where you can have more data on them within the setting of what you're trying to prove. Um, I think the CRO point is a really interesting one for us to consider, given that the traditional model of how CROs engage as well doesn't really incentivize them, per se, to make things faster and cheaper with less visits, which is kind of what you're doing. So can you speak to how you're fundamentally kind of disrupting the incentives that, that really align to CROs? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I've kind of lived through um, a couple waves of what's happened in CROs. And you know, one of the things a number of us have kind of um, bemoaned, if you will, in the, in the sort of major move toward the utilization of CROs that started somewhere around 20 years ago, starting to lose track. I think pharma recognized that there was a lot more efficiency in, in having a, a group of CROs that touch a lot of the same sites, that work with a lot of the same sponsors, create that efficiency around the operational execution of a study. Now, I will say coming from one big pharma that we've already named in particular, we had a tendency to want to at least early on, micromanage everything the CRO did. So it didn't really get easier or less expensive when we first moved to that model. Over time, the CROs have improved that a great deal. But fundamentally, they are uh, general contractors in most cases. And the primary business model involves some degree of markup or margin on top of everything they do. So if you add in more, more stuff, more visits, more things, it generally speaking is more revenue and more profits. And of course, there are creative contracting models that people have. I'm not, I don't mean to ignore that, but that's generally speaking the economic model. Um, so even though there might be incentive points to get things done more quickly or enroll things on time, we all know that most studies don't. And the longer they go on, the more time you pay for, the more revenue there is for a CRO. Our explicit goal is to figure out in many cases, can we do a study with a much smaller number of patients because we're measuring them much more frequently or with much more sensitive tools? Sometimes both. So for instance, spirometry is a simple example. In a respiratory disease study like asthma, you're only gonna go into the office every couple of weeks, but we might be able to assess patients twice a day for a week and look at the average of those measures across that period of time. And in so doing, we're reducing the measurement error a great deal and needing fewer patients to get to the answer. That does not become a more exciting study for a CRO. It can be much more exciting for the sponsor. You can save months or even years off of your total development timeline. You can execute something like that successfully, not to mention the smaller end of the people participating in general. So I don't think there's a natural incentive for CROs to pursue models like that. I'd love to see someone get really creative 
and figure out how to create the right value-based contracts that help them take advantage of it. But I haven't seen anything like that so far in our industry. Chris, what about from a patient perspective, I'm thinking they they got to be loving this because it's definitely remote data gathering is less obstructive, right? A lot more seamless. Uh, it's, you're collecting more accurate data. You're collecting real, real-time data. Um, how, how are the patient advocacy groups and patients overall uh, thinking about digital biomarkers? Are they, are they in full support? Are they, is this something that they are actually talking about and promoting? So I'd say one of the most rewarding things that I've enjoyed about being on this side of the table versus being inside Big Pharma is that I actually get to engage with patients and patient groups and uh, in, a, in a far different way than I ever would have in a Big Pharma. As much as most pharma talk about being patient-centric, there's very few people that actually get to go out there and do it. Um, I, I can say that I'm heartened by the great enthusiasm and engagement that many patient groups have in participating in making clinical research better. It's amazing. I don't wanna pretend that there's a blanket endorsement of the kinds of things we do. There's often appropriate skepticism. What are you doing with my data? Are you selling my data? Can I trust what you're doing with my data? Is it gonna be an invasion of my privacy? These are all very reasonable and rational considerations and questions I've often faced when talking to patient groups. And they're almost always incredibly reasonable when we share what some of our thinking is. In fact, we do use their data to develop our models and tools and make them better. Um, we do not explicitly sell anyone's data and we're extraordinarily careful to make sure it's always de-identified or pseudo-anonymized to fit the GDPR definition of how we manage their data. But patients have very practical questions about that. And I think very normal questions as people are becoming more familiar with the value of health data and its potential to be in invasive, if not carefully handled. With that being said, many appreciate exactly the things that you intuitively noted. Um, not having to go into the doctor's office or knowing that their symptoms are being assessed in a more natural environment. Um, we talk about you know rare, rare disease patients who are pediatric. Taking a little kid with a rare disease and flying on an airplane to go to a site, for those of us that have had little kids, that's a pretty disruptive thing. That doesn't put your kid in their natural state for any sort of assessment of how they're feeling or functioning. Whereas if you can do that in an environment that's familiar, friendly, and at home, not only does it save you the convenience, the time of participation, but it's more realistic. And patients tell us that very frequently. They don't care how they feel in the doctor's office. They care how they feel at home, at work, and at school. And so those are the kinds of really practical pieces of feedback that we get from patients and caregivers. It's that this represents the situation that I'm living with, dealing with, not something that feels artificial or separate or distant from the way I go about my life. And, and payers, I'm assuming that Chris, and this would be my last question, I want to pass it on to Kim, because this is such a fascinating topic. I'm assuming that the payers are also would really like the data that you're collecting because it gives them, it gives them more view of what's actually happening with the patient as well. And it's, it's becoming more and more focused and more precision medicine for the patient, which ultimately the patient will benefit from as well. Uh, is that right? Is, is that thinking right? What, what are the payers' reaction or response to this? You know, it's interesting. Um, there was a business started that uh, got lost in one of the mergers of the big PBM companies about 10 years ago uh, that started to look at this um, using molecular biomarkers, um, which would have an obvious appeal in terms of figuring out 
how the payers can play a role in deciding who gets what. Um, I do believe that there's a fantastic opportunity for digital biomarkers to do the same thing. It's not something that we're seeing absolutely mainstream just yet. And I would point to two reasons for that. One is that a lot of us working in digital biomarkers are working on the areas of highest unmet need. What that means is we're working on things payers aren't paying for yet. So we're doing a lot of work in mirror degeneration where there are very few satisfying endpoints and not nearly enough therapies or disease modifying therapies, but there's a lot of hope on the horizon. Now, if that hope turns into medicines as we hope it will, um, those medicines will then, payers will care a lot about how to allocate those medicines. We work in Parkinson's, for example, levodopa is a generic drug that's been around for 40 or 50 years. Payers are not concerned about how to allocate levodopa, nor are they even particularly worried about diagnosing Parkinson's patients earlier or anything like that. It doesn't really change their perspective or cost base in a super obvious way. But if there are new therapies and they're likely to be expensive when they first come out that they have to allocate, it would behoove them to understand how these tools could be used to make better decisions about who needs a medicine at a given point in time. So I think that's absolutely an emerging frontier for us. I think it will, it will be logically triggered as we start to see either areas like oncology, where these checkpoint inhibitors are going to need to compete much more effectively than they have. That could be maybe one of the first areas. I think in some of these neuro areas, we'll need to see the drugs get to registration. But once they do, there will be more demand to understand how to most effectively allocate those resources. And Chris, along those lines, you know, you started that statement with, you know, this isn't entirely mainstream for payers to be thinking about. However, there are certain areas that you do see as becoming more competitive and areas where you do think it'll probably pick up faster. Can you give us a perspective on the industry at large? And, you know, my understanding of Conexa right now is you're really designing the business about having to stay ahead of the puck, really, and, and everything that's going on in the industry. So I know you you as an individual and as a leader in the organization and your entire leadership team are actively thinking about where is the puck going? Where should we be making big bets? You've recently built a medical office to be able to do some of these things. So can you talk to us a little bit about where you see the industry and kind of the major trend shifting and, and what you're hearing from some of your peers about the same? Yeah. So I, I would divide biomarkers into three big buckets. So the the research report we most often rely on says that biomarker business is about a $50 billion business that'll probably triple by the end of this decade. And if you were to roughly cut it in thirds, it'd be a third drug development, a third diagnostics, and a third precision medicine tools. And just for those of you that don't necessarily think about, well, what's a diagnostic versus a precision medicine tool? A diagnostic gives you a very specific answer. They typically take a long time to develop, but they're meant to be extremely repeatable and reliable. So you take this blood test and it tells you that you have this particular disease or marker. Good example of a precision medicine tool is something like foundation medicine. So if you get cancer, it's highly likely that you'll get a foundation medicine report run against your genetic information, typically from blood or fluid samples, and it gives your doctor a ton of information about things to think about, but not specific answers. You might be eligible for this clinical trial. There are these studies that are ongoing or these considerations. So it's an informational tool to help the physician. Um, there's a lot of innovation that goes on in that space, especially in the space of cancer tools. Um, but in the areas that we work in, the drug industry and the drug development process is where the most resources are likely to be dedicated to solving a new measurement problem. Going back to Parkinson's, where we don't have therapies on the market today, 
earlier diagnosis doesn't feel like an obvious problem to a pair or even to a to a uh, to a physician in some cases. But if we want clinical trials um, to be effective, we know in neuroscience finding patients as early as possible in the course of their disease is important. So pharma is very motivated, whether it's Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or other neuro diseases, to try to identify those patients as early as possible, and they're starting to invest in it. I expect there will be a natural curve of medications moving from the pipeline into practice, and you'll see these tools follow and transition into those areas. Now, oncology is one of the most interesting and vexing areas for me. I think that there's been such a race to innovate with the pdl ones and they've been accruing more and more indications based on very traditional endpoints and generating tons and tons of revenue for the sponsors that create them. That's been sucking up all of the oxygen in the entire space of oncology clinical studies. As those um, checkpoint inhibitors are, are starting to look forward to patent expiry not being that far off, as we are seeing many of them catch up to each other in terms of having the major indications developed, they're going to need to differentiate based on how they perform in settings where patients are using combinations of different therapies and where we know from the overall survival data that we've seen comparing checkpoint inhibitors to traditional cancer treatments like, like chemo and radiation, overall survival doesn't look like it's massively differentiated. So understanding the patient's quality of life and experience on one type of treatment versus the other becomes really, really, really important. I think that's an area where um, we're likely to see innovation sooner rather than later because the expensive drugs and therapies are already out there. We do have reasonable indications that they work differently in different people, and there's going to be pressure to characterize that more effectively. So these very expensive resources get used in the patients where they can have the best possible impact but we hold them back or, or direct patients differently because some will have a negative experience from being on those drugs or won't have a more beneficial experience. And, and so, Chris, is that where you think the future is going? Where, where, what do you think the trend is? What's, what's the, uh, what does the future hold for digital biomarkers? Do you think it's going to be starting from the more expensive drugs that is harder perhaps to differentiate and you use digital biomarker data, the companies that they use, they do generate this data, they will have an opportunity to be able to differentiate along along the way. Um, and wh where do you see the overall, the market in five years from now, end of this decade? One of the things that I'm you know, most, most excited, most hopeful to see is that we can demonstrate that we could get a drug registered to market with a smaller phase three study because it used a digital biomarker, a digital outcome assessment that was more sensitive and allowed us to move forward with fewer patients. We could save months to years of getting a therapy to market if we did that. And I think an event like that, and I hope that Conexa is part of making that happen, and I fully expect that we will be, um, will wake up the industry to see how powerful these tools can be and drive even greater adoption outside of just drug development, but into other areas where there are lots of us that have an interest in answering questions about how drugs will work in a given population. But to be a little bit more futuristic for a second, Ramin, and going back to Kim, something you asked me about at the beginning, I think the increasing use of these technologies and the use of them in serious ways will also drive an expectation among patients who are, we're all patients and we're all consumers, right? At the end of the day, we'll all be patients for something. And many of us are consumers who are increasingly using technology to understand how we view our own health and how we explain things that are happening to our doctors. So I think that there will also be eventually more patient and consumer pressure 
to say, help me understand how this medicine or course of treatment benefits me. And if you want to explain that to me, you know, of course, the plain English conversation with or whatever your native language is with your physician is, is always really, really important. But the more people are using technology to understand themselves in their own environment, they're going to expect that that these drug companies and that their payers and their provider systems can also tell them, hey, we've seen evidence that, in fact, this particular drug leads to patients um, feeling more rested, feeling less fatigue, sleeping better. Those aren't the kind of things that we can easily quantify today. The patients are learning that you actually can build up a lot of data that tells you about that. So I think that we will start to see patients asking for more data like this, and it will become a compelling part of the value proposition for therapeutics. You know, maybe not tomorrow, but to your question, at the end of this decade, I certainly hope so. It's an incredible vision, Chris, that you know, patients will be more empowered in their own decision-making, both inside and outside of a clinical trial setting. Trials themselves can be faster. I would take what you just described maybe even a step further to suggest, you know, we could probably increase equity of clinical trials and who we can actually bring into the fold for those if we can now remove the barriers to actually joining those studies and allowing patients to um, potentially test whether or not these products are really going to help them in their disease course when they might be in an underserved community that might otherwise get access. So. I think it's an incredible vision and what you're building at Conexa is really fantastic. And we're very excited to continue on this journey and hopefully see everything that you're able to build along the way. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. Thanks very much, Kim. It's been fun to partner with you and SSI as well on the development of our medical office and these studies. And so we look forward to working with you on this journey as well. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.